So yeah, um, so let's be honest. How many of you today woke up thinking, wow, it's Palm Sunday? Anybody? Oh, got one. That's so good. That's, that's really awesome. And I think that, yeah, for a lot of us, though, for a lot of us, though, I don't think that tends to be the first thought in our mind when it comes to Palm Sunday. Now, if I was talking about Christmas, on the other hand, and especially probably the kids, for sure, um, that would be another story. I know as on Christmas as a kid, I woke up knowing that it was Christmas, right? As I rolled out of bed and my sleepy mind realized that today was Christmas, a whole host of expectations would have just flooded through my mind, right? Um, expectations of, what presents did my parents get me? Did they get the ones off my wish list? Or is that large Zorro action figure beneath that wrapping? Or did I just get a bunch of clothes put into an empty cereal box? We don't, you know, and so it's, it's whenever we wake up at Christmas, I think we recognize what time it is. We, the conditions of the day are not hidden from us. We know that Christmas has come to visit. But Palm Sunday, I, at least for myself, in all my years of growing up, I don't think I ever woke up knowing that it was Palm Sunday. It was only after I got to church where some kind soul had come in on a Saturday afternoon to set up palm branches around the sanctuary. Only after that would I even have the chance of kind of cluing in. And even then, I don't think I ever realized the significance of this, what this day meant. So why is it called Palm Sunday? Well, in the Gospel accounts, when Jesus of Nazareth approaches Jerusalem, the crowds praise him as king, and Jesus knows that his time to die is nearing. And so while he has been avoiding Jerusalem for most of his ministry of preaching and healing, now the time has come to face the religious leaders of Jerusalem head on. This arrival to Jerusalem is called the triumphal entry, and it is recorded in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And whenever an event is recorded in all four Gospels, you know that it's meant to be paid attention to. It's, it's a big one. And so where the palm part of Palm Sunday comes from is that in Matthew and Mark, the gospel authors describe how the crowd lays down branches on the road in front of Jesus. And interestingly, it's only in John's gospel that he is the one who mentions that the branches that the crowd are carrying are palm trees, from palm trees. But today we're not going to be looking at Matthew, Mark, or John. In fact, we are going to be looking at the one gospel that doesn't even mention branches in its account of the triumphal entry. It is the least Palm sunday E of Palm Sunday passages. Instead of palm branches, a different item is emphasized because Luke has written a gospel of peace. And today we are going to be looking at how that theme plays a core role in his retelling of Jesus's triumphal entry. So if you have a physical or digital Bible, I just ask, invite you to just open it up to Luke chapter 19, and we're going to start in verse 28. So in verse 28, it says, After Jesus had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So let's just pause right here. Anytime you jump into the middle of a book of the Bible, and the first sentence you read starts with either the word after or therefore, it can be really handy just to look back a bit to see what just happened and what was said. And in this case, Jesus has just finished speaking, and if we jump back to verse 11, we see that he has been telling a parable, one that actually might be quite familiar to some of you. 
Has anyone here heard of the parable of the talents? Anyone? Got a few hands. Yeah, cool, cool. Yeah, so some of you. And that's, that's, and, and that's talent as in a unit of money, not, not as in gifting or ability. So it's a little confusing. But yeah, if you have heard the parable of the talents, chances are high that it's actually Matthew's version that you have been told and not Luke's version. And you see Luke's version is not quite as popular and for a number of reasons that are going to be actually come quite clear. But Luke first starts with explaining why Jesus tells this parable. So in verse 11 we read, Now while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So that's the setup. While we're not going to try to go back even further to find out what things the crowd was just listening to, we can see that Jesus is telling the crowd this story for two reasons. He's near Jerusalem, and because the people thought that God's kingdom was going to come right away. Then Luke tells the story this way. So there once was a rich nobleman who was about to go on a long journey. But before he did, he called ten of his servants together and gave them each ten minas to split. Now, minas is a unit of currency, and let's all agree, minas is a much less confusing word than talents. So that's gold star, Luke. We're off to a good start. Um, so the nobleman gives these ten minas to his ten servants with the caveat of do business with the money until I come back. And then he heads out. He, now, the reason why he's going off to a distant country, it's not to go on vacation, it's not to go to a work convention. No, this nobleman sees that this land needs a king, and so he travels far away to a distant country to request he be made king of his homeland. And so think of it as the Roman Empire, and this man is traveling off to the emperor to request rulership. But there's a big problem. The people of his hometown hate him. And so they send a delegation after him, requesting that he not be made king over them. But apparently, the delegation doesn't work, because the man returns to the land as king. And so then he, after that, he calls his ten servants together and asks the first what did you do with your mina? And the first servant proudly declares, I've taken your mina, and I've made ten minas. And so the king congratulates him, and as a reward, essentially says, hey, you know what? I got a bunch of cities now. Here, have ten of them. And then the next servant says, I've taken your mina, and look, I got five minas. And so the king also says to him, fantastic. You know what? Five minas, here's five cities. And then we get to servant number three, number three out of the ten. And he says, Master, here is your mina, which I kept tucked away in a handkerchief. And at this point, it's almost a bit comical, because you can kind of imagine him proudly unwrapping his slightly stained handkerchief and proudly displaying the one single mina. But then he gives his reasoning, and if we can try to forget everything that we may have heard about the parable of the talents in the past, what he says next might give us pause. He says, Master, here is your mina, which I kept tucked away in my handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a demanding man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. So the servant accuses the master's character. And we could say that the servant is lying, but what is interesting is that the master does not deny these accusations when he responds. In fact, he leans into them and tells the servant, From your lips I will judge you, you worthless slave. 
Did you know that I am a demanding man, taping, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? And so why did you not put my money in the bank? And when I came back, I could have collected it with interest. The king then tells the other seven servants to take that one mina from servant number three and give it to servant number one. To which they say, wait, that guy already has ten minas. But the king explains, I tell you that to everyone who has, more shall be given but the one who does not have, even what he has, shall be taken away. Then he says of the people who sent a delegation after him, he says, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. And that's where the parable ends. Mic drop, curtain close, exit stage left. So yeah, that's the parable that Jesus says right before he starts to ascend the Mount of Olives as he's approaching Jerusalem. The last words his followers here are, bring my enemies here and slaughter them in my presence. It's very intense, and I remember, and, and just remember, he's telling this parable because the people thought as he approached Jerusalem that the kingdom of God was going to appear. So now, back, now we're here, back in verse 28. Let's read on. It says, after Jesus said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Keeping reading into verse 29, it says, when he approached Bethpage and Bethany, near the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you there. As you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent left and found it, just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord has need of it. So here we have Jesus ordering his disciples to go get a donkey. And I think it's easy just to kind of skip over this part since it's a familiar story to those of us who have grown up in the church. But if we consider the parable that we've just heard, it's interesting to note that this is a donkey that is not Jesus's. In fact, Jesus says that the owners might ask his disciples uh, why they are taking it, and they are to let them know the Lord has need of it. Jesus expects the owners to confront his disciples and ask what is happening. Now, we don't get to see the owner's response. Um, we don't know if the, this answer satisfied them or it didn't. Either way, the disciples get the donkey and bring it back to Jesus. But is Jesus here reaping where he did not sow? And like the king's final words, Jesus orders those under his authority to fetch for him. But it's not to fetch his enemies, it's just to fetch a donkey. So everything's good, right? And so if we keep reading on, it says, And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. Now as he was going, there he, the, the, as he was going, they were spreading their cloaks on the road. So in the Gospel according to Matthew and Mark, the crowd lays down cloaks and palm branches, but here Luke just focuses on the cloaks. So what's up with this focus? What, what is up with the cloaks? Why are they being laid on the donkey and on the road? And this is where it can be extremely helpful if you have footnotes in your Bible or cross-references. Um, if your Bible does have like a little footnote for this verse, it might point you back to a verse in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 9.13. And that's back in the Old Testament after King David and his son Solomon have passed away and after the kingdom of Israel has been split in two, Elisha the prophet directs a secret anointing of a man named Jehu to declare him king. And the reason why this anointing of the new king is secret is because the current king of Israel is not dead. 
which is a little awkward. Um, but after Jehu is anointed with oil, the people with him respond like this. 2 Kings 9.13, it says, Then they hurried, and each man took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet, saying, Jehu is king. And what then happens with Jehu is that he rides with his followers to the city that the current king of Israel is staying in. And as he approaches the city, a watchman spots him from the distance and tells the king of Israel. So the king commands a horseman be sent to ask Jehu and his delegation one question. Is your intention peace? But then the horseman, when he arrives, Jehu replies, How is peace any business of yours? Turn and follow me. And the horseman joins Jehu's delegation. And so you can imagine, back in the city, the watchman is viewing this, and he doesn't hear the conversation, doesn't hear any words, but just sees the horseman turn and join Jehu's delegation. So the watchman reports back to the king, and the king sends yet another horseman. And again, it's the same conversation. Is your intention peace? How is peace any business of yours? Turn and follow me. And so the second rider joins Jehu's delegation. Then the king of Israel comes out himself to meet Jehu and asks his question yet again. And in response, Jehu shoots him with an arrow through the heart. Is your intention peace? Absolutely not. And so this is a story of an anointed king who asked those he meets to turn and follow him. And that story would have no doubt been on the minds of Jesus' disciples. They, like Jehu's followers, are laying down their garments beneath Jesus. They are making ready the way for Jesus to go into Jerusalem and take his rightful kingship. And do they think that he will do this peacefully? Well, if they are really reenacting 2 Kings 9, I don't think they do. But let's go back to Luke 19 and read verse 37. It says, And as soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began praising God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And yet some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Jesus replied, I tell you, if these stop speaking, the stones will cry out. So Jesus' disciples are praising God loudly, and the Pharisees in the crowd are getting a bit nervous. They're starting to fear the political implications of the scene. You know, the Roman Empire is a powerful empire, but it's not a kind one, and it does not treat those who rebel with mercy. And the crowd is blessing their king loudly and boldly, but it doesn't seem to be Caesar, right? Blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of Yahweh, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now, does that last phrase there sound familiar at all to you? If we think back to our expectations of waking up on Christmas Day, one expectation that we might have is that the Christmas story is read, either by you or someone in your family. And in the Christmas story found in Luke, angels appear out in a field to simple shepherds to announce the birth of our Savior born in the town of King David. The one angel is then joined by a whole host of angels who sing glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among the people with whom he is pleased. And so at the beginning of Luke, a heavenly crowd is singing glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And now here at the end of Luke, an earthly crowd is singing peace in heaven and glory in the highest. 
The people might be declaring peace, but what's interesting is they've changed the angel's song to be peace in heaven, but oddly, not peace on earth. The Pharisees have a right to be nervous, but Jesus allows the crowd to sing and worship God. And yet what happens next, no doubt would have totally undone the crowd's expectations. It says, when he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over saying, if you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will put up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground, and they will throw down your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the day of your visitation." And so when Jesus catches sight of Jerusalem, he does not charge at the city weapons drawn. Instead, he stops, and the sight of it makes him weep. And then he lets out a heartbreaking lament, which we only get in Luke's gospel. In this lament, Jesus has two phrases, the opening and the closing of the lament, that I don't think we give enough attention to when we, when we look at the whole gospel narrative as a whole. He says, if you had known on this day, even you, the conditions for peace, and he says, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Both are meant to be seen in parallel. In both, we see that Jesus' people have missed out. They did not know the conditions of peace or recognize the time of their visitation, and because of this, Jesus predicts that enemies of theirs will surround their city, level it to the ground, and leave not a single stone on top of another. This shining city on a hill that is meant to be a safety for mothers, fathers, and their children, will become a tomb. But now at the end of Jesus' lament, he references a visitation. So who is visiting the people? Who are they missing? Jesus doesn't actually say that explicitly, but if we trace the Greek word for visit through Luke, we see a couple instances where Luke has prepared us for this phrase. It says, um, back in Luke 7, the crowd, after Jesus raises a widow's son to life, says, Fear gripped them all, and they began glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us. God has visited his people. And even further back, at the start of the gospel, this theme of God's visitation is evident. But before we go there, let me just highlight the other element of Jesus' lament. So in Jesus, the people of Israel do not recognize that God has arrived. He has come back to the vineyard, the promised land, to survey what his people have done and how they will respond to his arrival. They see the promised king, but they are missing out on the truth that when Jesus arrives, so does God. And the Gospel of John puts it in his prologue as this. He says, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But what is the other element of Jesus' lament? It wasn't just that they missed out on God's visitation, but also if you had known on this day even you, the conditions for peace. They missed out on what could bring them peace. Jerusalem, the very name which means city of shalom, city of peace, has chosen to reject the way of peace. And yet again, it all comes down to peace. Jerusalem does not know the conditions for peace. They are missing out on this. They have become like Pharaoh, whose heart became hard. And next week, Easter weekend, we will see how far they are willing to go down the road of violence. And instead of a future of peace for the city, Jesus predicts 
that what will happen is the city will be undone by violence, and another nation will overturn the city stone by stone, and in 7 AD, that is exactly what happens. Rome comes in, lays siege on Jerusalem for five long months before finally burning and destroying the temple. And if we go back to Luke chapter 1, we have a message of praise given by the father of John the Baptist, the priest Zechariah. In Luke 1, 68, after John is born, Zechariah says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And if we go down to verse 78, we read, Because of the, ten- of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us, to shine on those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. In Jesus, the creator of the universe has visited his creation, and the visit was intended for us to listen and follow him so that he could guide our feet into the way of peace. But when you read Jesus' words as he weeps over Jerusalem, we hear the pain and the heartbreak. Though that the crowd is shouting praise to Yahweh because of the coming king, they've missed the whole point. Jesus' words reveal that the motives of their heart are that they expect that the Messiah's arrival will come, and, and he will come with strength and power. They allow their expectations of his arrival to blind them from learning that the, the way for peace and seeing the mercy of their heavenly Father in the words and the deeds of the Son. And in laying down their cloaks before Jesus, they tip their hat, and they show that deep down they want Jehu as king rather than Jesus. But let me admit that after Jesus tells such a violent parable of a returning king who slaughters his enemies, it's hard to fault his disciples for responding in this way. But throughout Luke, we see that Jesus tells parable after parable of men in power who are corrupt. There's the dishonest taskmaster, the unjust judge. These are characters that are found exclusively in Luke in the parables. And this pattern of morally bankrupt characters in Luke's parables should make us pause before assuming that like, like Jesus' disciples, that a parable of a returning king must be interpreted as an exact representation of Jesus' own return. Perhaps in telling the parable of a king who does, whose people do not want him to reign over him and whose servants accuse him of reaping where he does not sow and whose anger causes him to order the slaughtering of his enemies, those who question his reign, Jesus is not telling us what he is like but is asking the crowd, do you really want a violent king to rule over you? Do you really want this type of man as king? And in laying down their cloaks, I think the people have answered the question as yes. They do want this type of king. They want a King Jehu, but Jesus is not a king of violence. He's one of peace. And so if Jesus' own disciples have missed out on his plan and his visitation and his plan for peace, The question for us is, have we missed God's visitation in our own lives? Have we missed opportunities for us to partner with him in bringing peace? And how has the spirit of Jesus been stirring your heart this week? Or even right now, what is is he impressing in your thoughts while we've been reading this account of the triumphal entry? What ways does he want you to set aside your expectations of him? And Luke has retold the story of Jesus in a creative way by weaving the theme of peace amidst the context that expected violence and bloodshed to
to be handed out by the promised anointed king, the Messiah. But Jesus subverts these expectations, and as he goes into Jerusalem, don't get me wrong, he will cause a ruckus. Right after this, he does enter the temple with a whip, but unlike Jehu, who slaughters the king of Israel, and then right after, slaughters the prophets of Baal in their own temple, in Jerusalem's temple, Jesus drives out the dishonest money lenders and does so without shedding a single drop of blood. And as we turn our eyes to Good Friday, we will see how we, in the actions of the religious leaders, enthrone a king of peace. We will see how the king is lifted up and exalted above the earth on a wooden throne that we nail him to. But in spite of our mock coronation, Jesus will take his kingdom and all authority in heaven and on earth will be given to him and the only blood to be shed will be his own. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And in the book, uh, in, in his book on the gospel of Luke, N.T. Wright has this challenge. He says, as we arrive at Jerusalem with Jesus, the question presses upon us. Are we going along for the trip in the hope that Jesus will fulfill some of our hopes and desires? Are we ready to sing a psalm of praise, but only as long as Jesus seems to be doing what we want? The long and dusty pilgrim way of our lives gives most of us plenty of time to sort out our motives for following Jesus in the first place. Are we ready not only to spread our cloaks on the road in front of him to do the showy and flamboyant thing, but also now to follow him into trouble, controversy, and death? Do we want Barabbas or the Son of God? Do we want Jehu or Jesus? Thankfully, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Easter Sunday are not the end of the story. At the very end of Luke, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, when Jesus speaks to his disciples, all together for the very first time after rising from the dead, he says one simple phrase, Peace be to you. The passage of peace is still open. Will we allow our king's tender mercy to guide our feet into the way of peace? Let's pray.